0: So let's begin in silence. Do whatever is necessary for you to be here, to be in the space. Be present, be open and our intention during this time is to come to know better who we are to know the truth to live fully and honestly and bravely in this world with the faith that all creation will benefit from our commitment to love truth and freedom So, no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Um, Since we're not going to meet for uh, two weeks, I want to offer some reflections today that at first may seem like they don't fit together, but I see them as pieces of a jigsaw puzzle which, when turned the right way, fit together to make a whole picture, an integer. And uh, that's one of the goals and hopes for what we're doing on this spiritual path—that uh, we consciously and deliberately walk a path into wholeness. I got that phrase "journey into wholeness" from my teacher Robert Johnson, and um, if you've read any of his stuff, you know that um, it's it's good. So I hope that what you get here today is challenging and comforting at the same time so three weeks ago i introduced in here a new theme embracing what scares us as things fall apart now you notice that the theme says as things fall apart not if things fall apart because we're always in this never-ending cycle of things arising and falling away things arising and falling away and one major source of human suffering is either that we ignore this arising and falling away, or we try to stop it. Or we think something's wrong when things have fallen away, and we think that we've maybe attained something when things arise. So <clears throat> you've heard me say before that one of the most frequently used phrases in both the Hebrew Scripture and the Christian collection especially from Jesus, especially from the minor prophets, especially in the Psalms, is the phrase, fear not, be not afraid. And I think it's just best for us to be honest with the fact that telling somebody who is scared not to be afraid never works. Okay, That's like telling somebody who's very scared about something that is going to happen, oh, just relax, don't be so anxious. It doesn't work, you can't do that. So, so far then we have said that things arise and they fall away, things arise and they fall away. And then, and I'm repeating this because repetition is the mother of mastery. We began to look at the role that language and words play in creating our experience about what is. We talked about the importance of hearing and saying four phrases in the fra- in the face of inevitable suffering and death, and the phrases are, I love you, thank you, please forgive me, I forgive you. And then we moved after this to talk about the power of words. Worlds create words, and words create worlds. And I think it's probably likely more important to finally tune this by saying that different worlds produce different words, and different words produce different worlds, because we all live in a variety of different worlds. And I also, and I did not get called up uh, by the Committee on Doctrine for this, nobody excused accused me of heresy about this, I said we needed a new trinity, and the new trinity I described as consisting of love, freedom, and truth. Now, I'm, I'm going to continue to use the teachings of Jesus, especially as seen through the lens of the Gospel of John, and I'm doing this for a variety of reasons. For one thing, the goal is spiritual and uh, religious literacy, and the fact that the teachings of Jesus tell us what it takes to live into these three things. Love, honesty, and freedom. And if we're going to be authentic in the living of our lives, and if we're going to create and participate in a truly empowered and empowering community, these are the things we need. So when Jesus came onto the scene, he stepped into the Jewish religion that had been created by the words of Moses and others that we talked about last week. And so Jesus saw the need for something that went beyond that. And so you find him saying, literally and in other ways, you've heard it said, however what I'm saying to you is, and he added to it or gave it something really different. So Jesus wanted to establish a new social order based on distributive justice. Distributive justice is the kind of justice that protects every person and not just those privileged in some way to bend the system to their favor. So, striving to create that goal in the face of the Roman Empire cost Jesus his life. And, to be honest, distributive justice is no easier to achieve today. Now, one of the reasons that I wanted to teach mostly from the Gospel of John during this time is that the Gospel of John was put together, more than likely from at least three sources, by the people who shaped it and and who were shaped by it were living in a world where things had fallen apart. And they had left the religion that had been given to them. They lived in this in-between time. They had allowed and continued themselves to be shaped and reshaped by the radical message of Jesus. So John was written to help them as well as people newly attracted to the movement to learn about, to clarify, and to deepen their understandings of the teachings of Jesus. Learn about, clarify, and deepen. Those are their goals. And they wanted exactly why you're here today. They wanted reassurance. They wanted challenge. They wanted comfort. Um, and, and by the time John was written... Uh, these followers of the way had already entered a time of pretty intense physical persecution. That started in about the year 56. John was written somewhere 90, 94, somewhere in that time, and so um, they knew what it was like to be persecuted for what they they believe. Um, now you keep in mind that these people used. The words of the world that they lived in. They, don't, they did not have our scientific oral views, so they created a world using the words that their world had given them. Okay? Understand that? And I don't think it's either truthful or honest or loving for us not to acknowledge that and to deal with it in, in whatever way we can. It doesn't lead to freedom, but it is precisely what the loudest religious group in this country, those who call themselves evangelical Christians, say is required to be a true believer. Okay? You all on board with this? You follow up? Because I'm not going to repeat this when we get back together. (laughs) But this is the grounding that you have got to know. Okay. I had a memory this week I want to share with you. And you're going to have, I've got some visual aids, but you're going to have to use your imagination for it. I want to tell you, I had a memory about a time when I was a little guy, nine, when I made an ashtray for my father. Okay. Now, I could not find an exact replica of the thing that I got, but I got a big round, about this big, you could use it for a doorstop piece of crystal glass okay I was going to make my father an ashtray what I did was I got some paraffin and melted it and I poured the paraffin into this glass receptacle now some of you will know what this is when my mother and grandmother and aunts would want to make preserves They would put them in jars, and after sterilizing them, they would take this paraffin, and they would pour it on top of what was in the jar, and then put a screw cap on it, and it would stay on the shelf for months fresh that way. Well, I poured that paraffin into this ashtray. Got a picture? And then I got a stencil of the letter K after the paraffin had dried, and I put it in that ashtray on top of the paraffin got the picture and then I took a very sharp exacto knife and I cut out all the paraffin leaving the glass exposed under that case so when I took the stencil out what you saw was that K etched in the paraffin in the glass you got the picture and then I got some sulfuric acid, and I poured the sulfuric acid in the glass thing on top of the paraffin. Now, the sulfuric acid would not eat away the paraffin, but it would etch itself into the glass, so I left it in the glass container for three days, and then I poured the sulfuric acid out, scraped out all the paraffin, washed it up and everything, and I had this beautiful ashtray to give to my father okay you got the picture I did that now there are several things about this story that I think it's interesting for you to know about not one of which I was really aware of when I did this I was nine when I did this. What adult in their right mind would allow a nine-year-old to have access to this kind of stuff? (laughs) Think about it. Dangerous enough to melt and pour the paraffin to say nothing of the sulfuric acid. For another thing, my father didn't smoke. (laughs) A lot of people, now tobacco was a cash crop in Tennessee, and a lot of people in in our community and association did smoke. Uh, I can remember once as an adult going back to visit my mother, who was in a hospital in that town, Columbia, and people in, who were patients in the hospital would wheel their drip containers out of the hospital so they could smoke in a smoking zone outside a hospital. I don't want to be too critical of that. I mean, you know, when, when I was in training and I entered training in, in the 60s here in Houston, uh, doctors smoked in the hospital. But most disturbingly of all, this ashtray-making project was a craft activity in my vacation Bible school. (laughs) True, I could not make this up. Now, the level of ignorance... And lack of awareness for this to occur, for a nine-year-old to have access to that stuff in a church setting, is appalling. But at the time, it was no big deal. Now, I'm telling you the story for a reason. The longer I have lived and the more of my own spiritual work I have done, the more aware I have become and am still becoming about how much further I have yet to go in being free. How unaware and ignorant I still can be and how I resist the various bondages I'm in that give me comfort. So we start losing our freedom virtually the moment we are born. At birth or shortly after, we are given a name. We are given a nationality. We are given a social group that we are told we belong to. And this involves things like economic status, religious identification, educational levels and expectations, sex, And all the things that let us know that we belong to this group and not some other. My father bragged almost till the day he died about the fact that when I was born on a Monday, Labor Day, six days later on Sunday my father walked me across the street and enrolled me in cradle-o of the First Baptist Church of Portland, Tennessee, six days old. And I, I, I tell people now that being a, a cradle of baptist is like being a cradle catholic You don't ever get over it. But there were expectations that came with that birthing circumstance. You're going to go to school. No matter what, you're going to go to college, I'm going to pay for the whole thing that went along with that. Now, if we're not careful, we can spend the rest of our lives either fighting against these things or stupidly defending them, things that we didn't choose. And either way, we are not free. Now, it is at this point that your spiritual teacher has a difficulty. It is one that every personal counselor has, and and it is how should this accident of birth and the things created by it be treated? And until we become aware that we live in a world not of our own choosing, we're not free. So how does a spiritual teacher deal with that? When somebody's hurt and scared, the way to deal with them is, a, is as a good mother deals with an um, upset infant. After checking to make sure the infant is not sick, hurt, soiled, or hungry, the good mother simply holds the infant close and says and does soothing things. If, however, the child is in clear danger, like in a burning building or about to be hit by the car, the mother's not so gentle, she yells and screams and does just what is necessary to save the child. So the spiritual teacher's dilemma is, should the stance be taken of that of a prophet or a pastor? Of a challenger or a comforter? Of a thunderbolt or a soothing rain? And in what order? This gruff army sergeant was dealing with a bunch of new recruits and one morning at assembly, after yelling, fall in, he said, hey, you, Private Smith, your mother died last night. And the chaplain happened to overhear this and, and got to the sergeant and told him something. He said, you just can't do that. You cannot tell people that kind of horrible news that way. Sergeant admitted he had no idea how to do it better, so the chaplain said, do you have anybody you love? And the chaplain said, not really. Not really. Um, maybe my cat. I have a cat I love. It's really the only creature that can put up with me. Well, said the chaplain, if I heard your cat had died, I wouldn't just blurt it out to you. I might say, hey, Sarge, we just got word that your cat's on the roof and won't come down. And, and when we get more news, I'll let you know. And then uh, after you'd adjusted to that, I might say, um, you know, your cat fell and injured itself. And if you were dealing okay with that, I would tell you, Sergeant Cat has passed on. The point is to break harsh news gently to people. Sergeant said he understood and he would act accordingly the next time. Sure enough, the next time came, a few weeks later, a morning assembly, he yelled, Fall in! Hey, Private Jones, your mother's on the roof. Our mother's on the roof our mother is on the roof right pick a pick an arena organized religion Um, the wedding between conservative organized religion and politics has gone too far to recover it's gone progressive Christianity is losing its foothold because it has no institutional base What's going on uh, regarding the devices divisiveness in this country is getting worse, not better. The move for authoritarianism all over the globe is getting further to the right. And agree with this or not, the people I respect say the scientific fact is that in 80 years, our entire planet is likely to be inhabited by ghosts. Now it's clear that many of the worlds in which we live are in need of repair. Many of the worlds we have created that we have created do not make it possible for a large number of people to find meaningful, full lives. Now we, at least I think most thinking people know this. But we seem some combination of incapable and unwilling to put together anything uh, to, do, to deal with it effectively. Privilege and power run the religion of our culture. The religion of our culture is consumerism. Some of our worlds are sick and in need of healing. It's ironic that one of those worlds is the world of medicine and health care delivery. Some of our worlds are ignorant and need educating. Some of our worlds have simply run out of gas and they need nourishing. Now, how do we do this? This is a test. This will be on the final when you go through the pearly gates, so get it. How do we do this? We do it by the words we use. Words create worlds. Words are the most powerful tool we have in creating the kind of worlds in which we want to live. Years ago, in here, when I began to bring the teachings of the Jesus Seminar into my own teachings, some people got upset and they said as much to me You're messing with the Bible. Um, One person I still remember said to me, When are you going to stop debunking the Bible? another said is it so bad for fundamentalists to hold on to what they believe especially if it gives them comfort and the answer to that is yes because fundamentalism is destructive to humans now i will confess that uh when some people have said to me after class you left me with nothing to hang on to i would yes But, you know, on reflection, that's not a good response. So I'm sorry. I'll have more about that in in a moment. So here's Jesus, who calls the people he spoke to to face and serve the world in which they live with honesty and integrity. And I think it is the task of anyone who claims to speak in Jesus' name, or any group that calls itself Jesus' followers, to live in light of the real knowledge that the various sciences have brought to us. And it is a fact that science-based knowledge has, lost, has led to the loss of traditional faith. Now, I'll just remind you again. Traditional faith, as I'm defining it, always leads to divisiveness. Who do you belong to? What side are you on? What do you believe? Look, folks, at what is going on in the United Methodist Church this month. Is it this month when the annual conference is, Tom? In May, in Memorial Day. And we're going to have this vote that will lead to a divorce. It looks like. Over whether we should Be fully inclusive of all people. I can imagine Jesus saying, yeah, you got it. That's what I had in mind. (laughs) Now, I want to tell you something that may or may not surprise you. In the entire Bible, in the entire Bible, there are only three places where it says that God is something. Only three they are all in the gospel of John. You know what they are? God is light. God is spirit. And God is love. Those three things. That's it. Um, so as your spiritual teacher, I want to both confront and comfort you. I want to comfort and confront you with love. And we'll get to spirit and light later. Now, if you want to think as love is something you can hang on to, go for it. And you can leave here saying, man, you left me with something to hold on to. That's great. But my hope is that if you stick with this, if you do your work, you will come to understand even better, you will come to experience that it is not we who do the holding. We're held. That's scary for a lot of people, but that's where that's where we want to go. So the word love appears in John 57 times. It's in the best known verse in all the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And it is all the way to the end where John where Jesus says to his disciples, which ostensibly is you and me, I give you a new commandment. A new commandment that you love one another. Unless they're Catholics. And then Now, I'm sure most of you, if you've got any uh, church-going experience at all, know that there are at least three major but different words in the Greek language used for love. By the way, Jesus did not speak Greek. Jesus spoke Aramaic. But by the time the Gospels were written, Greek had become, Koine Greek had become the common language of the people, particularly in the Greco-Roman world. The Greek world was increasingly influencing what was going on, so Greek was spoken, so the Gospels were written in Greek. Jesus spoke Aramaic. That's a, part, that's a pretty good, important thing to know. Um, but the, writer of John, the writers of John use Greek. So uh, that was the world that they lived in. And they used the words of that world to create their world. Okay. So one of the Greek words in um, John for love is uh, eros. It's the word that we get the word erotic from. It means to have a passion for something. I looked at my wife across the breakfast table yesterday and I said, I love bacon. <laughs> true story. And it's true, I love bacon. I am I am I likely the only member in this only human in this room today who is truly a member of the Bacon of the Month Club. <laughs> I get a bacon package every month. Eros is not the word that John uses. The other word in Greek that uh, is used for love is the word uh, that means um, kind of soft love or affection we have for each other. Philia, the city Philadelphia, is that word comes from this. The city of brotherly love. I love you, bro. That love, right? That's not the word John uses. John uses another word that we are not familiar with, a word called agape. And he uses it to refer to the deepest, highest, broadest, strangest love he or anyone else could ever imagine. And it is the love that we so desperately need. It's the love our world needs. It's the love we need to express between each other. And yet, paradoxically, it's the love that we are afraid of. I can tell you as a personal counselor, if you know, how many, 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 many times people have said to me, you know, if you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. And what Jesus says is, I do really know you and I love you. Jesus believed, taught, and lived that the community he wanted to create would flourish if it was rooted and nourished in this love. And I believe that if we do the work required to allow this love to come alive in us, we're going to be able to deal with what scares us without being had by our fears. Now, please note what I just said. I did not say that if we have this love, fearful things will go away. They won't because things arise and they fall away. People and things that we love and adore and think we just couldn't live without are going to pass away. It will break our hearts. It will pierce our hearts. That may be a good thing. We tend to learn something. But the love that I'm talking about gives us the power to deal with what shows up. One of the biggest pictures of somebody being afraid, terrified, is the story told by Jesus on the night before the crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating pleading please let me out of this now what does this love look like well a lot of things for one thing this love sees people as having built-in worth not as objects this love includes everybody not just a privileged few Now, just pay attention to how much trouble is caused in this world by objectifying people. I think women are innately better, with a few exceptions, at seeing people as subjects rather than objects. I think that's the reason that God made women mothers, because they know about connections. You know, the biggest money-making thing on the Internet is pornography. And it teaches men, mostly, to objectify and idealize women and not see them as humans. I think the most difficult thing for a man in an intimate relationship is to withdraw the projections that he has made on the woman he has fallen in love with and see her as a person. Women can do that. Women can see a bald-headed guy smoking a cigar with a beer belly as cute. Men, not so much. (laughs) By the way, you know that pornography is the way now that most children gain their first knowledge of sex and sex education at the age of seven? Because of these smart phones that they have and the kids that they hang out with and it spreads like wildfire. You know, uh, sexism is a problem in our culture can be seen in the resistance our culture and the systems in our culture have to equal pay for equal work. Why is it such a big deal? All right, it's a big deal because our culture is held tightly in the shadow archetype of white male privilege. We're not free. This love is not something one feels, it is rather something one does. It's not something you believe. Now, uh, I was thinking when I was writing this this week, as we get further into the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John has a lot of stuff to believe. And that's because of when the Gospel of John was written, as I said, in this first century time when there was all this persecution and falling away and the desire to to reconstruct a new community. If you go back three decades to say the composition of Mark, there's almost nothing in Mark to believe. If you go to, for example, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, there's not anything in there about what to believe. It's about what to do. It's how you behave. It's how you behave with reference to the widow, the orphan, the stranger. It's about how to behave. By the fourth century, when all the complicated creeds of the church were being written, wasn't anything in there about what to do. The Apostles' Creed is all about, I believe, I believe, I believe. Most people today still are convinced that being a Christian is about what you believe. This love, by the way, is truly unconditional. It's given to people who don't deserve it, and it withholds punishment from people we think do deserve it. Don't take my word for this. Read the narratives. As I said earlier, Jesus taught distributive justice, not retributive justice. And this this love is troubled by injustice, and asks us to do whatever is required to make sure everybody has equal respect equal rights equal opportunity this love is like the law of gravity now you may not believe in gravity but if you step out of an 18-story window it's going to be true for you the law of gravity isn't just a theory If we live by this law of love, we are rewarded in ways we cannot imagine. However, if we love in order to get the rewards, we've already lost. Complicated. This is the love that determines whether the communities we're part of are whole or not. And it's wonderful to be the recipient of this love. It's even more life-giving to be the source of this love. And that, I think, is one of the reasons we hang out with holy people. I'm sure that's the reason that some people, not all people, love to hang out with Jesus because of what he thought about them and what they experienced about themselves when they were in his presence. So every day, each of us faces choices. No matter how frightening the times seem to be, do we pass along bits and pieces of love and light, or do we leave the world colder and darker? That's up to us, right? So um, Sherry carries this going to the symphony gene in our marriage, which I'm very grateful for, otherwise I would never do it. I love to go to the symphony and learn about the musicians and see particularly when we have these incredible artists who come in and we'll see some young pianist walk out on stage and sit down and play a Bach 4 movement piece and never look at a piece of music. And I would say to Sherry, how do they do that? And as a musician, her answer is muscle memory. They have played it so often, they have done it so many times that when they sit down to the piano, it just comes out. And over a long period of time, they have this gift to recall all these different pieces, which when they sit down at the piano, it's just there to play. You see this all the time. A baseball batter swings the bat three or four times before stepping into the box. Or if you want to watch the most boring show on TV, golfing. You see a golfer uh, do several practice putts before actually stepping up and striking the ball. So with us. We say words that express agape as we live our lives. And like good addicts learn in AA, we fake it till we make it. Thank you for thinking of me. I'm going to go for coffee. Want me to get one for you? Oh my, I'm so sorry to hear that. That must have been awful for you. What you did was so cool. Thank you. Now, I know you're busy. I know you're busy. Some of you uh, do not even have time to have a daily spiritual practice. But do you have anything to do that is more important than deepening your capacity to love? Now, I want to warn you that this love is like the ocean. Though this is really not an analogy that can convey it. You can wade into the ocean just a little bit and that's fine. You're still in the ocean. Or you can venture out into the deep where it's really risky. And you can't touch a bottom. Sometimes we are thrown into the deep. I look at the news stories coming out of Ukraine. And I marvel at the love stories I see. What I hear Jesus saying is that this powerful ethic of love is what makes you and me. Most fully human, and it may just save the world. Now, again, it's not trying to avoid what scares us, it's embracing what scares us. James Baldwin wrote, well, Not everything that's faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. So we not only face what scares us, we embrace it. And today, I've tried to focus on the role of both challenge and comfort in the process of transformation, So the prophetic voice helps us face the illusions in which we live. The prophetic voice helps us see what is clearly. And for some people, the prophetic voice feels like a loss of security because the prophetic voice is about letting go. It's about toppling false gods. It's about calling out false religions. So the prophetic path is one that is never popular, nor is it easy. The comforting voice... Talks about union, communion, love, transcendence, connecting, creating a world of meaning. And usually everybody likes the comforting voice. Um, It's easy for those who so speak to become well-established in culture. I think, you know, Jesus could have saved himself a lot of trouble if he'd just given a few lectures at the Sanhedrin and had dinner with Pilate from time to time and talked about philosophy. But I believe we've had too much comfort and not nearly enough of the prophetic. How can we live in a new world if we are comfortable with the one we have? Now, if you go back and look at Christian history, you will find it struggling again and again between comfort and agitation. Usually, comfort wins in the institutional religion because it seeks to maintain the status quo. This is how institutions are always so slow for change. I have agitated to change Our worship here at St. Paul's for years. We don't need to be saying the Apostles Creed. (laughs) (laughs) So Jesus came as a prophet and when we meet after Easter I want to talk some about what does it mean to have the mind of Christ, the mind of Jesus. At any rate Jesus challenged and sought to transform Judaism. He failed. He did start a new movement, which, after it was forced to organize, became an institution. Now, I want to be clear. The institution has provided guidance and meaning for millions, and it created orphanages and hospitals and institutions of higher education and more, but it has also become guarded. It protected pedophile priests. It has become wealthy and powerful. It's used the influence it's had for wrong. And... It has withheld or given the salvation that it thought it alone had to those it deemed worthy. So many people in organized religion did not seem to notice this or the cognitive dissonance it created, but some did. Some questioned the way things were done. They bent the rules off and broke them. Um, the church has traditionally ignored such folks, except if you go outside the religious organization and create a parachurch like Richard Rohr did with the Center for Action and Contemplation, which is not part of an organized movement. People frequently say, uh, when I transferred my, Method- my ordination to the Methodist Church, are you a member of an organized religion? No, I'm a Methodist. So, <laughs> But when people have stepped outside the organized religion, they've been branded as heretics. Uh, they've been burned at the stake sometimes the church has opened itself up for genuine change and renewal um, I hope this change and renewal can occur but what I'm personally hoping for and what my teaching is about is that you and I having found and experienced both the challenging and the comforting message will take that challenge and that comfort out of here into the various worlds that we occupy and create using the words we have, different worlds. I'm a dreamer. I love Zen teaching stories, and the best Zen teaching story, you may have heard it, that I think perfectly combines the challenging, comforting stance that I've been trying to convey today is about this big, old, burly, filthy samurai who goes to this little Zen master who's sitting in meditation, and he looks down at him, and he says, Tell me the nature of heaven and hell. And the Zen master looks up from where he's sitting at the samurai, and he says... Why should I tell a disgusting, miserable slob like you anything? A worm like you? You wouldn't understand. Go away. The samurai is so consumed by rage, he draws his sword. He's about to hack the samurai's head off when the Zen master master looks up and says, That's hell. And instantly, the samurai understands that he has just created his own hell, black and hot, filled with hatred, self-protection, anger, and resentment. And he sees that he was so deep in his hell that he was willing and ready to kill someone. And tears filled his eyes, and he puts his palms together in an effort to bow down in gratitude for the insight. And the Zen master looks up at him and says, that's heaven. Now, the point of that story is not that hell is bad and heaven's good or to get rid of hell and sit in heaven. The goal is is to develop an open, loving heart to everything. With this mind, we come to recognize that wherever we are, we're already standing in sacred space. Everything that comes to us has come to us to teach us what we need to know. Whether it scares the bejabbers out of us or not. So, our gathering has come to an end. Where will we go and who will we be? We ought to be God's people in the world. Come next Sunday and hear about the stations of the cross. See you then. Thank you.